0: If uh, Reb Lachman will allow, it's uh, it's a big cover to have Reb Lachman uh, with us this afternoon. Uh, isn't that, that the Isn't that the we can't hear name? you. So if you're protesting <laughs> to the introduction, I, I don't even yeah. know about it. <laughs> yeah, <okay. That's> the <laughs> Number the one, oh, on a personal oh, level, okay. it gives me a chance to uh, to offer some Akar tov. Personally, Rebbe was 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 my uh, my my, my magichir at the time that I was in Kerem Rebbe is no uh, stranger to giving Sherman YU for the newer guys. It's been a couple of years since Rebbe was on campus. So uh, uh, we're, we're happy to have another opportunity. The first time I heard Rebbe was on campus 1997, a Tish Friday night. My brother, I was in MTA, I was in 11th grade, and my brother brought me uh, to Yushima uh, to for Shabbos. And I uh, was pretty much sold on KBY uh, already at the time. And uh, I think the last time Rebbe came to, to Yeshiva for Shabbos, I spoke in the cafeteria, and I received from there some very well-deserved, but significant Moser afterwards. So I'm going to curtail my own statement so I don't get into trouble again. But I will say on behalf of, of the Heber here, Yeshiva has been a semester, and Baruch Hashem has grown in many ways over the years. And ultimately, I think the credit for the inception goes back some 15, 20 years or so. Rebbe Lachman encouraged Mickey Elman and uh, David Prell at the time. Uh, to, uh, to uh, exemplary talmidim uh, of our yeshiva going back of, from when I was a, a bachar in the base Medrash um, to, to create a context and a structure for, for guys to, uh, to stay strong and keep this Zman going even during the time when, uh, when there are no classes and there are no courses going on and to maintain the culture in the base Medrash. And the fact that we have literally dozens of guys it, it, live in yeshiva on campus and also via Zoom uh, is a testament to the success of that initiative so uh, it, it's our opportunity to thank Rablachman for, for making that, uh, uh, helping help that into reality so many years ago. Without any further ado, thank you so much, Rebbe, for joining us today.
1: Thank you for your kind words. Does everybody hear me? I'm hoping that, yes. Um, is this going to be filmed, Rabbi Schnell?
0: I don't hear. Unmute yourself. It is currently re- recording, but we can stop the recording, if Rebbe would prefer. No, no, no. I just need you to to send it to my G drive. <laughs> okay, we'll make sure that everybody gets it.
1: <laughs> okay. I'd also ask the different people who are here with their black faces. I'd like to see who they are. Uh, people here uh, uh, don't want to show their faces. I, I, you obviously put on your makeup. But there's no Chaim. Hello. You don't want to see, see you. Okay. Uh, you know, Mr. Anonymous, I don't think God even has to talk pun him to pun him. So why would you want me to talk pun him to some black face? Good. Oh, I see Mr. Younger. Are you still in Chicago?
0: Still in Cincinnati, Rabbi. Cincinnati.
1: <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. The Ari Miklut over there. It's in uh, Manhattan. Okay. Shite. Uh, good Shabbos. Why are you people wearing masks? Oh, because you're in a Shetach Harabim. I have to understand what's happening here. Uh, I see. Two of you just joined. Okay. Okay, um, let's talk about something that, um, um, you know, the, the the crowd is that uh, in different Torah, anything which is new is Al-Korch Torah. Because if it's Torah, obviously uh, somehow it lies in the Kabbalah of Moshe Messinah. So uh, one would almost say, uh, what does it mean to have a chiddush? Uh, and the answer lies basically in two primary sources. One is a Rashi at the end of Kohelis on the passive Enko Chodesh Tachas Hashemesh. So it writes over there, the Rashi, the, um, uh, rashi brings the medrash, that Me Hashemesh Enko Chodesh, interesting. Nothing is new. Science at the best is trying to discover that which is. We're not trying to create new things which weren't there. We're trying to find out. Oh, efforts we apply and make the other things. But the gufa khidish is already there. We're trying to uncover it. Yet when it comes to Torah, he says, there is khadish me'ala which really sounds like almost impossible to understand. And Rashi says, mashalama ha'dav is a tinayk, which is yaynek min hadad. A suckling which sucks the milk, the nourishment from his mother's breast. Now, I don't exactly remember the experience, so I can't describe it uh, vividly. But Rashi seems to be saying that every time the child, uh, uh, like, feels the breast, he somehow has another flavor in that in that nourishment that he's uh, that, that he's, he's having, which is very interesting. The implication seems to be that a Chiddush is not the information, but the subjective relationship with it, the Tam. Tam, a right? flavor. You, you you attain a certain understanding, a certain flavor, and that, this is probably understood with the, uh, what Reb Chaim V'lazhinah writes. It's brought down in Keser Raj, which is the an of Reb Chaim um, They're printed in the back of uh, Siddur, some Siddhar some versions of the Siddhar Agra. And there he writes, what is Chidushay Torah? Khidush Torah is clarity. If you have more clarity in something, that's called Chidush. Chidush is not in, in, in the information. Chidush is in the understanding. To what extent is that, are you walked away from using cliches and actually started actually understanding subjectively what you're really listening to? That, that, that's a, um, that's how grace of Chidush. It's out there like the Chazal say it, also at the end of Kehelis, when it says, so Rashi brings it. Say Gemara that ain't the that a Talmud is not Oymer al Das Rabbi until he's nesaf, until he's uh, he's dead. It's a Medrash. You can only understand Das Rabbi after he's dead. Why? It's a never passion because when he's alive, you attach yourself to the externalities, not to you. You don't. You you collect your notebook. You fill your notebook with information, but it's only after the man is not there anymore to give you more information. You start trying to figure out his silences, his nuances, his th- way of thinking, his way of feeling. And that's when you're Ayman al-Das rabbi. This is the device of the truth. I hate to say it, I've experienced it, so I know it's true. Uh, I experienced both as a Talmud and both as a Rav. <laughs> so I know, I know how true it is. Uh, this is some of the idea of Chiddush. Chiddush means you have clarity. I need a certain clarity. And some suggests which become the mainstream of your of your worldview, get different clarity every time you're misassickling them. So I'm going to ask Michalis, whoever may think that you've he heard what I'm about to say before, listen carefully and attentively and you will hear a new flavor. Because, you know, you get older, you um, uh, feel things differently. And here it goes. Well, the topic I want to talk to is about is specifically about Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, I doubt I'm going to have time to do the whole uh, spiel. I'm going to start. I'm going to start, and I'd like to talk about the person. Now, in order to understand the remarks that I'm about to give, I must put down a certain uh, axiomatic idea, aside which uh, I don't believe there's a way of walking away from it. And that is, as I many times have asked my students, how do we define the Hamish Yichum How do we find the book? Now, I'm talking at the level of, if you have a book, okay, in, the, in Barnes and Nobles, under what label would it be? And that's the question on the table. How do we categorize the Hamish Yichum now, logically, you wouldn't have thought in the beginning, you know, I figure it's a history book. It's telling the history of the Jews, like Paul Johnson, I don't know, telling the history of the Jews in, the, in, the, um, in the, um, that era. But anybody reading the book realized that's really off the charts wrong. Simply by the bare fact that there are, not only are there major holes in the history, but there's no sequence you open up a Tanah de Seder Oilem, which finally describes the sequence of the Biblical era, let me tell you, the Chumash, if you wouldn't know Tanah de Seder alem, is all off the charts. Uh, one typical example we parse is Lech Lecha. It's all for care. Lech Lecha happened after the Brisbane Ben absurim. For example, Bris Ben preceded that, if you really want to know. Okay. Also, the Mechemes malachim is not put in the right place. It, that's really an interesting part where everything was stripped and turned. Rashi Taki believes, because of that, as a general rule, in pshat. Ramban Ibn Ezra, as those who are a bit more well read, know that they try their best to understand the things in sequence, and if they can't, they resort to Rashi has no problem of ease doing this very easily. This is found all over whoever learns Chumash with Rashi and Ramban. We'll see this in multiple places. Well, obviously, one of the first defining factors of a history book is to teach you the historical sequence. And since this book is basically uh, whatever the sequence is, it is not historical. So one must come to conclusion that the celestial author did not even want to write a history book. Then we have to understand what exactly is the sequence. OK, what, 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 what is the idea what is the sequence? There must be a justifiable sequence. To the to the, the order of the book. And then, well, we look carefully, is it a novel? An historical novel? Like Howard Michener, I don't know, an historical novel. And the answer is also, it would be very bad novel. It's a novel. I mean, it wouldn't pass English lit. I mean, for goodness sakes. The characters are not fleshed out in any form or size. Um, example. Let's talk examples. Avraham Avinu, what do you know about him by just reading Chumash? Nothing. No, was born. He had a father called Terach know nothing about his background. And his father had moved away from Ur-Kazdan to uh, Ramna Narayim, the Haran, that over there, which is very interesting. We don't know why. I repeat, I'm learning the Chumash without all the uh, allegorical, allegorical uh, additions found in Midrash. Who's reading Chumash? Stay Garnished. The book doesn't say anything. Can you imagine if an author writes a book and since he wants to tell a story, well, you have to read the appendix. There's only one book I know which is based on appendix and sub then and by nothing, whatever his name is, Kamenetsky, making of a guggle. I don't know where the book is and where the appendix is on. It's all mixed up. But outside of that, regular books don't have that. The genre does not allow it. You write a book, you're supposed to flesh out your characters. I don't know. All of a sudden, there's some guy called Abraham, which comes on the stage, and God talks to him, tells him, go a skelter somewhere. Who is he? No clue. It's a very important question to ask. What does the author want? Why doesn't the author tell me who he is? Um, same thing you would ask about. You say, "I would hope that he was a happily married man." Well, fact the matter, she stayed around with him for a long time, it was his partner in his uh, in his uh, quest. And it seems to record only what is it, two or three conversations in their whole life. First one, he suddenly wakes up in the morning. He's like seventy-some years old. Says, hey, you actually look good. I hate to tell it to you, you will get married one day, um, as soon as, whenever proper. You've got, you must compliment your wife at least thrice daily. And this guy gives one compliment in a backhanded way at the age of 70. How did that marriage last? You really think that's the truth? That would be ludicrous to think they didn't talk. The Torah also doesn't tell me how they dated. Did they go ice skating in Rockefeller Center? Like, what did they do? You don't know. Because the Torah's not interested in telling you that. Because not what the Torah wants to do. God, the author, wants to write a book without a fleshed-out character, just wants to describe certain episodes in their lives, not in historical sequence, and not in any, not, not any idea of building a character and describing the character's life. Not at all. For example, what do you know about Sora? All you know, she was jealous about this Hogar and couldn't stand the other, and the asked them out. What do you know about it? Nothing. Oh, what do we know about Rivka? Well, all the pseudo-scholars will say, of course, she had a lousy marriage. She went behind her husband's back to get the brachis for her son. You know, it's, it's like someone deciding to do a psychoanalysis of my personality based on meeting me once for 20 minutes. That would be less than ludicrous. It wouldn't even, it would not, you would cover it with fish in the market. It's a meaningless piece of paper. How could you possibly analyze a personality from uh, some sparse occurrences? And the answer really is we are not interested in the personalities of the biblical characters as people. We have no way of knowing them, no clue. It's not because they're holy rollers and we're too small. That's all nice and cute. Without that, as a, as a person which learned literature, you cannot, the author did not describe the characters. He didn't really give you much, gave you very little. The author does not want to write a literature book. He does not want to write a history book. What is he doing? He's taking small, disjointed, non-sequential occurrences of, of history and having what we call short stories. This is O. Henry. This is basically God took snippets of history, formed them, the short story forms, and put them together, and that's your Bible. The character in the short story is nothing more than a means towards an end. You, look, you use the character as a ways of presenting an idea, a message. That's what the short story writer is doing. You, you you get enmeshed in those characters only in context of that story. You know, nothing before, nothing ever. I never saw a safer O Henry with a peerish of I don't know of You know what I mean? I don't think any writes a Madras, you'd be a fool. You'd be under my you like, take like taking Henry's story and make it into a big literature. Very nice. o well, Henry didn't mean it. what whatever his name really was, doesn't matter. Chashtos. The genre is one which does not want, does not demand uh, fleshing out the characters because you really don't have to know them. You have to know what is coming out of the story and understand the characters in that context and nothing more. So should you ever see um, literature which tries to psychoanalyze biblical characters, do me a favor, laugh. Because they're non-academic and they're they're below par. They they simply um, totally miss the mark of what the book is supposed to be. Although it's quite common, but the Amaratus is also very common, so I wouldn't be that much concerned. Now that um, that should be obvious. In light of this, if I'm going to analyze a biblical character, that's why I'm doing this. I don't want, I want you to say, I'm not analyzing Moshe Rabbeinu. I have no clue about it. Honestly. If I would think of him in his marriage, I'd say God. Nothing there, you know. What I mean, except he had two kids and she did a drismaila there once on the way on the highway. Garnished, didn't he buy her flowers? Nothing. Garnished. What do we do here with all these marriages? Rachel is loved by Yaakov. Yeah, what, how often does he talk to her? What do you know when she asked him for a child and she screams, he screams at her. That's all I know. Obviously, he loved her. Obviously, they spoke endless hours. He must have taken her out on dates. No, did stargazing. He was a shepherd. I don't know what he did, you know. Uh, he they, they had a great life together, I'm sure. she They had a beautiful life together. Totally irrelevant to me. Maybe he was abusive. I don't know what he was. I don't care. I do not care about who they were. I don't care about any of them at all. They have no religious significance to me. What I care about is the literary character depicted in the Bible, Chumash, Dvar Hashem, which is used as a message, as a medium through which God tells us his teachings and his dialogue with man. He chooses to tell us what he wants us to know vis-a-vis these literary characters, which happen to be real characters, but we only know them in context of literature. This is something which is very, very important when we go and we start analyzing the that we do not analyze the people, we analyze the literary character in context and therefore try to understand the message coming out of that. As I told you, in the gift of the Magi, I will try to understand the characters in light of the story. I will not try to understand the characters out that outside of that. I don't have the information. So that's what Khumish really is. It's Tvar Hashem, if you read the Ramban and the to Torah, it's Tvar Hashem, the Dairi Dairis, vis-a-vis these characters. Now, every generation has a different tool of deciphering that Tvar Hashem. Ramban says Mefurish. He says that, all, that Shlomo HaMelech, how did he, what was the book that he learned, Sichas, the Kol and Ba'ayfais, from the Chumash. I hate to say it. It doesn't say that Moshe Rabbeinu knew it. Sholem HaMelech uh, knew it. Rabban says, where did Yeskel see the um, uh, the Nevoah of the Merkava? Very, very profound Nevoah from the Chumash. I hate to say it. Nehemi y- didn't see the Merkava. That means he didn't see it in the Chumash. Every generation is going to have other tools to decipher what that generation can and should decipher to understand the Dvar Hashem coming out of the Chumash. That's why, yes. There will always be, it's there. It was always there. The question is not every generation will have the tools to see it. Obviously, God God is in constant dialogue with man through this chumash. And obviously, talking to each generation through the generation's tools, expecting each person, each generation to use the tools available to understand the Tzvara Hashem. This is a very big Akhrayis. So I know it's easy to say vorts and it's easy to do all that, but they ain't worth stuff to cover fish in the market. Your question has to be, you're taking and making a major responsibility of looking at the Khumish and the personalities. And what do you feel? Or obviously feeling is not enough. Feel is our gush is didn't by Anita. That would feel. That you intuit that it is accurate and true. It's what you intuit, which is accurate and true, and it's, it's not just a guessing game and a beautiful maybe, but something that you can use serious tools with and say, yes, academically, this is sound, that, is, that, that has theological value. I say this because we're in a, we, 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 there are multitudes of literature, which are very inspiring when it comes to saying sermons out of the Chumash. Your question has to be, to what extent do those sermons have any theological value? Theological value does not come because something is beautiful and inspiring. I hate to say it, it's the most inspiring speeches I ever saw were from Baptist preachers. I don't think their words have much theological value, if anything. Okay? And Reformed rabbis. They're great. Okay? Um, I was once in a certain place where Shabbos and was, was forging through the library of the rabbi there. And I found, like, in a shelf, he had all these books of all these interesting sources for sermons. I figure it's very good. That's what you call the Rabbi's Manual. If what you're looking for is inspiration, you know, like an NCSY Ebbing or something like that, like I met God on Killington or, you know what I mean, or things like that, then then, that, then, then it doesn't have to be theological sound. What you really want to do is just to turn people on to a value. It's a means towards an end, which you may or may not be legitimate. I'm not going there at the moment. But if you want to learn theological value, it must be something which you, at least you intuit through logical thinking and tools, that this is actually accurate. It can't just be a beautiful maybe. Possibilities, maybes, are simply not enough, not based enough to be of any theological value. I hope this is understood in context. that's, I see. say all this before I start my own analysis. Obviously, you understand. I'm putting down all the disclaimers before I start this. In light of the aforementioned, I would like to look, if you don't mind, at the personality of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's very complex. And I'd like to start at the beginning. I mean, he really has a very interesting job. He's the only person I know which quit his job and got accepted the resignation. At the end of Pasha's Baal Eisham, he gets fed up with his uh, congregation, the Jews, and says they're a bunch of Baal Taiba and I can't solve it. And God, you can slaughter all the meat in the world, they will never have enough. He's nicely saying they are they 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 they, they are simply irrational and have obsessive desires and I can't deal with that. Find them a shrink. So I'm quitting. Right? And God says, right, I accept your resignation. You're a lousy shrink and a lousy leader. I'm taking in 70 people, making a Congress, and they will lead with them. That's when you had the Sanhedrin. The Shivimskan. That's actually God, it's like Trump saying you're fired. That used to be an old TV program. God did not fire him, but God accepted his resignation. That's pretty bad. It's a nice way of saying God agreed that as a leader of a nation, he was deficient not deficient enough to be fired, like Eliahu Navi. Eliahu Navi was fired. If you read the Navi, he goes to the mouth of Har Sinai, and he complains about the Jews in a very, very, very sharp way. Woo. And then God gives him this unbelievable celestial sound and light show. It's at Har Sinai. And the message of that whole thing is, Lo Hashem. God is not found in those who scream too loud and complain. It's the still, s- silent voice, which is godly. It was a very simple way of saying, can you please tone down? You're talking about my children. And then immediately after he gave him this, this lesson, which he hoped that Elio would understand, he says, to ask him again, Malachope Elio, what are you doing here? And he expects him to now say whatever he wants to say in a different tone. And he just goes back and, you know, goes rabid, you're screaming, oh, Banecha Chotu and he gives all, he does everything. You know, they you killed the VM, they're terrible. And God says, I guess the time has come. You're being kicked up to the house of lords. You're no good for here. And that's when he was fired. So we have one person that was fired in history from his prophetic job. And one person which God did not fire, but accepted his resignation. And that's a very, something which is very, it's a bit of a taint on his resume. One has to understand this person from, it's literally, what happened here? Who is that person? Who is the person which is, brings God down to heaven through Torah? As the Medrash says in Shirashirim, that the Shechina, so to speak, due to the different sins of the generations, moved me, me arets, And the first one that broke the glass ceiling and bringing the Shekhinah down for Rikiah Shvi into Rikiah Shishi is Moshe Rabbeinu. The Medrash says that prior to Moshe Rabbeinu, prior to Torah, there was a Gzerah of Elyonim Lamala vetechtainim Lamata. It was Moshe Rabbeinu which broke the glass ceiling and allowed Elyonim to come Lamata vetechtainim Dalut Lamala. Great man. Unbelievable prophet. It seems to be a lousy king. Couldn't handle the flock. Couldn't handle the heat. He's complex. I want to understand him a bit more. Not him, but what is described in the Mikrion? Why does God tell this to me? What is the message God wants to tell me by depicting X amount of episodes in his life? I have to learn that. What does it mean to me? So let's start with his life. His life begins, and it's actually, it's it's presented in two stages. One in Parsha's Shemais, and then in Parsha's Va'era. So in Parsha's Va'era, which is this week's Parsha, he's presented as a normal human being, which has a father, and has a mother, and has, has a brother, and a sister, and nephews, and cousins, you know, uncles, the works. They really present a very, very nice picture. And that's the beginning of this week's parsha. Yes, it says, who is this Moshe Aaron?" Here it goes in Shmos, Perik Vav. It says, after it says in the Pasuk, in, um, it says, These are the two people appointed to be what we would call the redeemers of the Jews from bondage. And then there's a whole few soaking. But Russia based on saying there's a Ruvain, and he had a bunch of children. And then there's this Shimon, he had a bunch of children. And then there's Levi, that he has a bunch of children. And out of the Levi, he had a grandson called Kahas. Kah- he had a son called Kahos. and Kahas had an Amram. And then there's Morori, all the other cousins. And Amram married a and then all of a sudden, what did we have? And what children did he have? He had Aaron and Moshe and Miriam. And who did Aaron marry? It says you know we like to know he married into the princely family of Judah and as it's a very, and even who did Moshe's nephew marry? It's really interesting to see, okay all this is brought here, and we end up and we say who Aaron and Moshe who means to say he this is who the person is who Moshe Aro. The plastic is clearly underlying, without going into the repetition, etc., which is not what I'm going to do today. Is um, want to say that for these redeemers of the people, were people of family. They were uncles. They were brothers. They were sisters. They had a father. They had a mother. A grandfather. Everything is there. This is the this is introducing Moshe as a guy in the family, grew up in the hood. You know what I mean? He's part of the guys. He went to school with everybody. He's a normal person. But this is only the second introduction of Moshe Rabbeinu to the book. And the Pasha Schmeiss is introduced totally differently. Well, let's look at Pasha Schmeis for a moment. Here the story goes. That um, there was an anonymous man of the Levy family which married an anonymous woman of the Levy family. That's all it says. We don't choose to tell the name. What are the author doing here? You're going to tell us the name soon. No, no. At this stage, the names are not relevant. An anonymous man by Yelech Ishmi Beit Levy by et Bat does it say he was a grandson? Does it say the name? Does it say Amram Godla Doroya? Nothing. Vatara the lady was impregnated by and she bore a male. Vatara Now try to read Chumash. What does that mean? Well, Taiv is a subjective reaction, as we know the Rambam in Mer Nebuchim Chelik Ale Beis. Taiv is not describing what he is, but what kind of reaction I have to it. In locker room language, when you say, oh, she's good, you're not describing what she is. You're describing what reaction you have towards her. You talk, oh, that's a tasty meal. You're not describing what it is. You're describing what it is for you. It's a subjective term. One will never say the earth is round. That's good. That would be quite ludicrous. You would say it's accurate. There's a far cry between accuracy and good. Uh, for example, 1 million and 1 million is 2 million. That's accurate in simple arithmetic. Is it also good? Well, that would depend. If it's the back taxes I have to pay, it's bad. If it's the t- t- tax returns that I get from the IRS because I, I gave too much, that's good. In other words, the, when we talk about truth, the word good and bad are highly irrelevant. Usage of good and bad in terms like that are bad. I always tell people when they say, Rebbe, that was a nice, that was a beautiful sheer. I say, my wife is supposed to be beautiful. Tyra is supposed to be accurate. Okay, Beauty is irrelevant to Tyra. Uh, it, it facilitates it, makes it pleasant. It was inspiring. That's very sweet. Did he also tell you the truth or was he fibbing? The question has to be, is it accurate or is it not? Is it Tyra? Is it not Tyra? If it's not, it was beautiful Shekhar. Oh, that was a beautiful Shekhar, Rebbe. You know, if you say that, that'd to awesome, Yeah. You know? I'm trying to say, you, Tyra demands accuracy. Maybe some possibilities, you can cover fish in the market. You got to prove this, man. Is it true? That's the question on the table. Will you? My father used to tell me, will you be Machir Naguna with this swore? If not, keep your mouth shut. That's a simple clout big clown in Tyra. You'll be the gun with it? Roll with it. You won't? Hush. But it's beautiful. Answer all the questions. So what? Since when do we work with mathematics through a sense of aesthetics? It's like trying to solve mathematical problems through poetry. It's, it's, it's totally mad. There's not even a half a minute this makes sense. Um, I suggest you that that's the language you're supposed to understand when you're learning turk Is it MS or Shekin? Toiv, Ra, Matok, Hamut, Lo Relevanti. Peshoot mode. It's not relevant at all. It's irrelevant. At the best, it makes it pleasanter to facilitate or to internalize. But they can never be the acid test. The acid test must be very accuracy. Proven academic truth. Then we can talk business. Without that, it's just nothing. So you must understand what happens here is the Tory here chooses not to tell us anything. Did he have a name? He was circumcised, obviously. But Tory doesn't tell us that. I'm telling you, did he have a name? But well, we know who the daddy and mommy were. I promised you he had a brisk. They even gave out herring there, for all I know. Okay. Did they give him a name? Did someone stand with Amida brachas? Machabit some harabba, whatever it called, some of them, the Amida yitzhar Ben Levi Lamida Labrakis. Of, of course they had that. The Kar Shwebi so what do they call him? Well, look at the Midrashim, Tuvia, Avigdor, he had like seven names. He, he's one of these guys that had like a Khsid Shinukla had like eight names and they used one. He also had a lot of names, a lot of Hebrew names. Does anybody know his Hebrew names? Most of you never heard them. And no one ever uses them. Interesting. He at the moment doesn't have a name. He doesn't have a dad. He doesn't have a mom. He doesn't have a name. He's put into a... He's called good. What does good mean? It means she had a good feeling about him. What it means? It, obviously, more than a regular mother, she had a good feeling about him, and that's why she chose to endanger herself and to hide him. Look at the Pesach. That means it could be chain, It could be a multiple things. It definitely doesn't mean that the household was lit up and they didn't need electricity. That's what Rashi said. What does that mean? That Khan Ed went out of business? That all of a sudden he was generating a dynamo of light? What do you think it means? Well, this is not interactive. You're all hush, hush. So I'll have to do the talking on both sides. Obviously, what it means is since light in Midrashic language and its fila is nothing more than a tool of cognizance, allowing cognizance, awareness. That's why we call light, a person, the, is, a, a person is is knowledgeable and understanding. He's called, he's enlightened. He's enlightened because now he has a, a big mass of awareness, cognizance, and ideas. So what you know in this probably didn't mean to say that the lights went on mean to say that there was a feeling of a sense of of awareness of cognizance in his presence that's that's legitimate they sensed or she sensed intuitively a sense of awareness in his presence Uh, we could call that an aura if you want in literature okay a sense of oh this kid is special it was intuitive she didn't put a finger on she didn't know what it was she knows she had an intuition that this child is special. Okay, that's, leg- that's legitimate. And what does she do? So Mrs. Anonymous' mother puts him into a basket, protects him from the elements, and puts him into the river. And then Anonymous' sister, again, she isn't even worth the name either. So this guy doesn't really have a sister, doesn't really have a mother, doesn't have a father, doesn't have He's a wife. He was born from the Holy Spirit, as far as the book is concerned, at the moment. Okay, now where's he going? He's in the river. And then some anonymous uh, pharaoh's daughter, princess, picks him up. Now, let's understand. Pharaoh had multiple wives and multiple concubines, as it was very customary in all in life at that era. So let's be honest. So Baspari is one of a multitude. Take Achishverosh as an example and read the Megillah and understand norms of biblical kings. Okay, King David had 18, King Solomon had a 1,000 wives, for goodness sakes. So you think King Pharaoh, which is not such a sneeze, Dick and has only he's a, he, he, one wife. But we cannot be not logical. So Baspari is one of multitudes. He probably had a whole base on Noshim over there. Does she have a name? No. Do we have record of a name of a daughter of Pharaoh in Divriah Yaman, which married Kolob ben Yafuna? Yes, her name was Bitya. Do we have any indication in the Bible that that is the same the same bat paroi of Moshe no we do not even know if it was the same pharaoh for goodness sakes pharaoh is nothing more than a, a, a it's like caesar it's a king of egypt it's going to be another pharaoh you have nothing in the bible i'm saying bible i'm not talking about midrashim at the moment you look at the book the book doesn't give any indication that she was a saint or a holy lady nothing at all she's not even given a name mrs miss anonymous I repeat, trying to make Xavier Shabbat to the very young is really not honest. It's like deciding there was only one pharaoh with only one name, with only one daughter. It's, 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 it's You can't do things with your schtusen. That can't be. So what we have is an anonymous daughter, and she picks him up, and she says he's one of the Ivrim, which is interesting. Why do I say Ivrim? Ivrim is very interesting, because Ivrim only means he's me'evil anor. Does she know he's Jewish? Why do I ask the question? Because exactly prior prior to that time, there was a long era of Egypt, which was ruled by a Semite Bedouin tribe called the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. And they ruled at that period of time. It was only later, some dated to this idea uh, that that the Yakima Lechadosh, that now the the Egyptians, the the dark-skinned Hamite grandchildren, rebelled and took back their homeland. Okay? And also, so now, but obviously we had Hixis people there, which were now seen as subservient. So I don't know: did she know she was Jewish, or did she just know he was an Ivri? It's interesting to notice, because Ivri could be also a member of the Hixis. It could be they're both Semites; they're both Neishem. Something which is worth thinking about: what did she really see when you read the Chumsh? Ivry. Ivri could be the Bnei Yaakov. it could be the the other people that were ruling here for hundreds of years. That's clearly underlined when they sold Yosef, they sold him to Potiphar, Siris Paray, Ish Mitzri. Now, can you imagine, you say, I sold you to the um, Secretary of State of the of the American President, which is an American citizen. What do you think he was, a Persian? Why would you write Ish Mitzri if he's Siris Paray Sarah the territory is because the Stam Sorim and the Stam Srisim at that point in time were not Ish they were Semites. Do your histories, okay? And you'll understand this, okay? The territory underlined that that was not regular to be an Ish Now you can understand why Yosef's brothers didn't recognize him. Otherwise, what's this white guy doing in this dark government? It's like having a white guy in, 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 in Zambia, you understand? He's obviously a Semite, they would have checked it out. But there it's because the ruling party at the time were were Semites. If you really want to know, okay. That's ter haga, that's a free present. That's Mikra. Okay. okay, are we Rabbi, together? Rabbi, what? based on that how can the PostgreSe say that it was a Toeva? It's a laza, Rabbi. Yeah, what? So why would the Pasek say that it was a To'eva for the Mitzrayim to eat with the oh, Abraham? That, yeah. I, I, I would love to do it, but you have to understand that the Ixus took with themselves also the norms of the company that they, that, they, uh, that they took in. That's why. That would have to be true. My question is really great. There's a major um, difference in color between Bnei Chom and Bnei Shem. Bnei Shem are the Greeks... Etc. We're talking about the, Mesere, the Mediterranean Basin. They're all like um like you and me, okay? And the um, um the uh, the other guys, the Bnei they they're more, more like your neighbors. You know what I mean? They sell the oranges by the bridge over there. You know that it's just something else. So there's a question here which has to be dealt with. Okay, this is not the place. That was just an, an aside, just to show you. You start reading Chumash, like a mensch, and then you see so many different things. So then obviously at this stage, what happens is it's all Mr. Anonymous, and he's growing up there. They sent him to to, 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 a, to the mother to, to, to feed breasting. and, and the Raman said that was for two years. Afterwards, for 10 years, he lived in the house of Pharaoh. When the Pasuk said, ba, yabim, ba, yidam, moshev, yitzel, that was when he was 12 years old we know he's down. what's he down? puberty is 12 to 13 so we the normal suckling is for two years afterwards puberty is 12 13 going on 13 that's when these that's all we know did he know he was Jewish interesting we have no indication they knew he was Jewish did he know he was Amram's son do you have any indication for that do you know he was your Yochevet's son? Do you have any indication of that in the book? No. Reality is the Ramban writes he didn't know. The poor kid grew up as an Egyptian prince, prince, prince of Egypt, right? And he was not aware of his Semite background. Or maybe he was aware of his Semite background, but he didn't know he was Jewish. Obviously. He didn't know he was a common slave. And, 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 and what happens is really very interesting, is that the day he found out he was Jewish is the day he walked out. That's what Ramban writes. That day when he was 12, going at 13, whatever you're going to call it, finished his 12th year, starting his 13th year, okay, which is bar mitzvahing, a nice way of saying it, that's when he found out he was Jewish. Okay, this is the character that the Torah is telling me about. Telling about a child which has no name, no family, no nothing, a wife drawn out of the water, raised by an by Egyptian princess which is not aware at all of his lineage, until the age, so obviously he wouldn't know anything about monotheism. He did not grow up in a monotheistic community. He didn't know he was anything. So he was probably worshiping the Lord Sun or the Lord Ares. Actually, they had a major pantheon of lords. Their major lord was sun, rock that's the major lord, and then they had different added lords, like they have a pantheon, like many other groups, some, they, they worship Neptune, so here they worship Dior, they worshipped Ares, because they liked sheep, whatever it be, those are only the semi, semi-gods, like, think of the history of, a, read your Greek mythology, you'll understand that, so they had multitudes of semi-gods, and the major god was the sun god, look it up, for goodness sakes, and you'll, um, he rise, rise, the name of the sun, Lord's son, lord sun. Really want to know. That's what it means. Uh, so you understand. That's what he grew up with. So look at his background. He's frightening. The kid doesn't, obviously, the two years that he was there as a suckling by his parents, he what, not, no information seeped in because he was not aware of his Jewish lineage. That means to say they had no effect on his psyche. That means the Torah is telling me he is a clean slate. He has no background. If anything, he has a background of a hedonistic pagan household that he grew up in. Well, let's describe the the society he grew up in. It's Egypt. I once did this in a very graphic way. I'm going to be nicer here on Zoom. You know, the Pusik says, by Bacchus Bukhairus, that there's supposed to be like one child in every family, Right? And if you read Chumash, Chumash, you realize it says up there there were a lot of kids in every household dead. Inferring that Father's Day was a very confusing day in Egypt. It's like some neighborhoods you go in Brooklyn that you see only mothers, you don't see fathers. And Father's Day is a very confusing day in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I guess in Manhattan too. Well, in Mitzrayim, it's Mitzrayim, it's Mitzrayim, it's Mitzrayim, it's and therefore, the lady gave a lot of B'chor for Reuben, B'chor for Shimon, for Levi. She was a source of, of B'chor and they all died. Is this just the ladies or this common practice? Well, it's very simple. We know the Nabi HaChesel describes the Egyptians as they being like horses. Zirmasusim <speaking in English> zirmatam which means to say, as the Gmar says in Yivamis, they are extremely um, active in coitus uh, in, intera- in sexual uh, encounters with no limits. They're like horses. To the extent that the halacha says, that's why they don't have a, any sense of genealogy. There's no yachas of Av labain. It's like a horse. A horse when he's in heat and the mare is in heat. He's not going to, in- to engage in an encounter in order to get himself a little foal. No, that's not what we're talking about. He's thinking not about yesterday, not about tomorrow. At the moment he's in heat, he's thinking about today. The fact that there will or be not a little offspring coming out of this encounter is really not on his mind. He didn't read the Eger Sarkoidesh of the Ramban. Okay? This is a horse. And because of that, there's no really sense of lineage of generations between Goyim. That's the society we're talking about. Jews, on the other hand, are terribly obsessed with children and memory. I always tell the story, one of the most tragic encounters I had was in Karen Biafna, where um, this kid comes into my office. I used to have it in the office building. And, uh, and, uh, and, and he says, and he's very sad. And I ask him, why are you so sad? And he says, because Rabbi, what the average American family? So I say 1.6 children 2.5 dogs. That I lived, the dogs I lived by living in the west side. You see these guys walking around with two little chihuahuas wearing Burberry sweaters, you know, in the winter. Man, I don't own a Burberry sweater myself, but this guy has them for his chihuahuas, for his little dogs, and they're walking on Broadway. It's very hush of to see this sometimes, what people do for a dog, but they only have 1.6 children. So he looks at me and says, Rabbi, I'm a point six child. No one really wanted me. I'm the oops that happened afterwards. You're pregnant? I'm the mistake. It took a lot of years to undo that, that feeling. A lot of, a lot of, you no, know, a lot of, you no. Know, but thank God. Good guy. Yeah, that's what Mitzrayim is. The children are a mistake. Jews are obsessed with children. Let me explain why. Because the Mishnah says in Adios Describe there what the father bequeaths the child. And Rebbe Kiva adds, You know what you bequeath your children? The total mass of history that is now on your shoulders, which you must give to him, for him to find his flavor and take it further. It's called the chain of generations. An accumulation of human experience, which grows and grows with generations and is taught further to the next. Your father gave you the Doroche Lefanav. I always tell the story when my firstborn was born after many years of marriage, and at the Shalom Zachar, someone asked me, What do you feel? I was quite annoyed for a person to ask me such a personal question in public. You know, you'd, you'd have to be like my, the closest person about to be asked me a question like that. But since he was an elder person, I was Chayyab Bechvoydoy, what can I do? So I couldn't just do what I wanted to do, just look at him with a, you know, stare him down and ignore him, which I would have loved to have done. I said, okay, I'll give you a, an answer, but I, don't, I will not elaborate. I said, you understand that until now I was Laurence Olivier playing Hamlet on the stage. I was the actor in the park. That little red thing screaming found in the back room, he just kicked me off the stage. He's now the actor. I'm producer. Maybe I'll be a director. I don't, if he's like me, he won't let me be a scriptwriter. I just moved to the credits in the back of the movie. Not the front. Starring him. Um, you know, the little letters in the back. Produced by. Oh, I'll get an Oscar. But not for a great actor. You know, for director, producer. It's a different job and I thank him for it because the beauty of children is that you have now been the reason for the future and now you can fulfill your task of bringing the past, which is on your shoulders and, 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 and let it go further into the future. That's the beauty of, of, of children. You know, the tool we use to um, live that way is called the tool of memory. Bryce says in their zuta it says Here's some of them. Koines, Sofeg, the He accumulates experiences, he sponges them in, and they live perpetually in his memory. Now, what does that mean? There's a good memory? No, it's a it's a character trait. You live in the world of memory. Memory is the tool of taking past experiences, storing them in your mind through mental images, and then reliving them again whenever you conjure up those images. It's literally the transporter of the past into the future vis-a-vis the present. That's why memory and children are very special for Jews. We who live memory, we do not live just in the present, but we're constantly tied back to our past and trying to push our past into the future, are obsessed with children. You know, um, what kind of society does it take to throw little children into the Nile? What kind of society can be so barbaric, to, at least even metaphorically, to stick children into walls, so to speak? I'm not going into the history of that or not, but the idea behind it is clear. It's child abuse and murder because children are nothing more than the price we pay for our temporal pleasures, and they have no real importance because who cares about the future? At the most, future will be perpetuated through stones and bricks. But our lifestyle will be totally hedonistic, thinking totally about the present, not caring about the values of the past, not thinking what this will bring in the future which if you ever experienced Taiva, obsessive desires, then you know that really after you relax, you say, shucks, that was stupid. But if you'd be a man of memory, then you'd always ask, where does this lead to? Where's it coming from and where does it lead to? Then you wouldn't be tied down with obsessive desires. Obsessive desires are only those people, as the Raman writes, which is if you're a person of Chachma, then you're constantly looking for source and ultimately derivative. You don't just enjoy things in today. You must find their source and you must figure out their derivative. You live past, present, and future. That's because a man of memory. That's the Talmud Chokham. You know, um, um, next to the Supreme Court in Jerusalem, there is a big pillar which looks like a remnant of a bombed-out wall. And on top of it, there is a word with four letters, five letters actually. It says "Nizkor." We will remember. This used to be in the square next to Tachanunim in Jerusalem because they once they built the light rail, they moved it to the front of the um, of the uh, Supreme Court. Historically speaking, at the time, this was supposed to be the first memorial that the country of Israel made for the six million. And there was a big argument between the prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, and the minister of religion, which is Arav uh, Yudolev Maimon, Arav Maimon, head of the Pala Mizrahi, a signator on the uh, Migilat Tatzma'ut, Tzara Dutot. You must have heard of Yad Arav Maimon, Mosad Arav Cook. that was him, okay, Arav Maimon. Originally called Fishman, but obviously he trained, he, he, he presides his name to Maimon. We'll let that one go. And um, uh, he wanted it to be, to be Yizkor, that God should remember. Well, um, Ben-Gurion was not exactly, very much into God, per se. So he wanted to write Nizkor, that we Jews should remember. Well, as, as it goes in politics, God never wins. So they don't have Yizkor there. there we have Nizkor. I was not aware of the political thing. I always used to think that Yisker, 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 Everybody goes to Shul for Yizkor. Like Yizkor, you know, you grew up with it. That's when those, those, those electric things are open on the side of the Shul. All the names are, you know, that's when the rabbi does the big appeal. Yisker, Yisker. And I came to Israel and I saw this thing said, Nizkor. I was unbelievably impressed. I remember this as a child. It, it hit me. I never saw a thing like this before. And it says, wow, this makes so much sense. We will all, God always remembers. Don't worry about God. Will we remember is the real question. To what extent will we take the past, translate it to our present, and present it further into the future? So I was very much impressed with this nizkor, because I think that's really our job. We are supposed to be people of memory. You look carefully, you'll see guys impressed is obsessed with memory constantly. Lamantiska, Lamantiska, Lamantiska. You it's see, trying to is something that was constantly remembered. There are so many mitzvahs attached to that. We are a theology of memory. And I repeat, that's why children are so important to us. The morale says, you know why a child, poor gets Bishnayim? Two portions. First of all, he's the child. Second of all, he's the one that transformed his father from just being a person into being a father. He kicked him off the stage and made him a producer. That was the source of my vort over there with the... Uh, that's the morale. So he gets two, he got two things he did. He gets two portions. We are, yeah, we're obsessed with memory. People who live in memory are type of me'adas. They look at their whole reality, they ask where it came from and where it's leading to. If they live that way, they cannot plunge into the world of the das, of obsessive desires of aylma taiba. These are weeks which we're thinking about that to how we solve these issues of Taiva is through the rabbam says tovail b'me'hadas. We must immerse ourselves into the world of intellectual thinking. It doesn't just mean saying tilm; it means actually thinking in source reality. Where does this idea come from? Where is it leading to? That's tayva b'me'hadas then you won't have issues of uh, This was the world that he grew up in. Do you understand where where Moshe grew up in? Not knowing he was Jewish, thought he was a member of the princely family, grew up, hate to say it, in a cat house. In the house of the Raz and He grew up in the red light district of Amsterdam. He grew up in Hugh Hefner's palace in Chicago. That's where he grew up. That's where he grew up. Now I look at this. Why does the author want to tell me when he tells me all this? The author is telling this to me. I know the situation. I read the term. The author wants to say by not saying any father or mother, he had no influences. They were biological daddy and mommy. Maybe they made his soul or other mystic thing. At the end of the day, no influence. The only influence he had is he grew in base power. Right. But he had a nice stepdaughter. mother. All's I know, she was uh, the harlot of Babylon. How do I know who she was? I know she had compassion for a sweet child, Ivory. Granted, maybe she had a sense of justice, and that's where he learned his sense of justice, an acute sense of justice, because as soon as he walks out, he sees someone doing something unjust, he kills him. By the way, he has a temper. You have all seen unjust things. You don't kill people, definitely not when you're 12 years old. He has this anger issue. We see through the Bible. He gets angry at his brother. He gets angry at the Jews. He loses it. Chazal say a few times on him. B'al kas, b'al ta'ut. He makes me stinks because of anger, which is beautiful to see. I pres- Now, is he? I don't know what Moshe Bainu was. He's a Malach I'm talking about the Beblakal character. That's why I'm free to say what is seen in the character, please. Uh, don't say Rabbi Blackman is bad-mouthing the gedolim. Or something, or, or mushroom. No, 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 no. I don't know who he is. Bro. I, was a kid. I don't care. Who he was is totally irrelevant to my theological life. What's important is what does the Kurdish want to teach me through the literary character depicted in his celestially authored book? And that's what I see. I see a man which has no background. He's a mushroom. You make a shakal niya bedvora on him, not a adamah. He has no roots. He's Safna Daara. Everyone Bruchus, You know, he's a mushroom. Nothing influence. The only influence we had is, 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 is maybe a sense of justice coming out from the stepmother because she also did a certain show, a certain sensitivity. We see he's got somewhat of a temper. Not very well calculated. He looked around and said there's no one here and he wasted somebody. Well, everybody knew. So he's pretty new to the job. He wouldn't have worked well with Chicago Mafia. You know what I mean? So what are we talking about over here? This guy was like an ice warp, a lowlife with a good sense of, uh, of, uh, of justice. Now what happens next? Now the author doesn't tell you what happens next. Now the author keeps quiet. Interesting, there's no medrash chazal at all describing what happens next. The only source we have is something is some book which the Ramban discredits totally, and says you shouldn't believe it. It's called a, a mythological book called Sefer Yashar, which has no theological meaning and value. It's even less than Sefer Makabim. Okay, so we have nothing. We have no chaz, We have nothing at all in midrashim and Tereshim, except to describe what happens next. We next time we meet him is sixty-eight years later. We have no, at the end of his, wherever he was rolling around the world, the last trip was to Midian. That's where he met Zipporah. That's where God told him to go to Egypt. He, and then he was 80. So that means for 67 years, the guy is somewhere. In the area, in the desert. I don't know where he is. What is he doing? I don't know. Did he, what did he do? Where did he, no, not, not relevant to the narrative. But isn't it important to know how he did things? No. I just want to tell you what happened after those sixty seven years. After sixty seven years he attained a level of prophecy of Shal Mi al which the Shalom asked the question why does it say Shal mi al And by Yeshua it says Mi al did Yeshua only have to take off one foot shoe and he took off two shoes? That they didn't think possibility. Obviously, it doesn't mean that. So we must come to a conclusion that by Yeshua, when it says, it means make your feet shoeless. And therefore, it's enough to say, feet is a group. And is also the group. Make your feet shoeless. So then why do we have a different language and we say Shalna Mi Al Raglecha by Moshe Rabbeinu. The Shalah asked the question, Ribidza of brings it down in uh, in, in the Hagwar of Perik Aleph Mishnah Aleph. And Shalah answers because you have to understand why is it that prophets um, in order to attain prophecy, they have to go th- they have to fall asleep or use imagination. And uh, go through some epileptic seizure. If you ever read Perik Zayn Hilchis, the ma the Navi doesn't see things the way they are, he only sees them the Mara Ubachida, Upiteron Khakuk Balibao. And even then, only after as he writes, Eva Rav Mizdazeem, Koya Khaguf Kashel, Vitishe era dat nuya, la vinu last kill Look at Rambam. And the Shalah explains because body awareness is a major static creator and is a buffer. doesn't allow pure intelligence to be. You can't really have a direct uh, uh, communication from God if you have body awareness. So what they do with the prophet is they try to like, give him to terrible seizures, etc. Even the perfected human being, which is the prophet, to lose body awareness, and only then, even then, since subconsciously he still has body awareness, he does not hear the words of God. He only sees a mesh, a metaphor, and he has to interpret. Moshe Rabbeinu is not that way at all. Moshe Rabbeinu, as the Raman points out, lost all sense of body awareness, both 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 in consciousness and subconsciousness. He's literally a walkie angel. He, he looks in the mirror, sees a shama. Hardly aware of the harmony suit called the body, that's not what he sees. When he says the word "I," he takim means his neshama, etc. His whole life functions that way. Therefore, he can actually hear God face to face without falling asleep, without having a, uh, a seizure, and without having rhyme and riddle. He can literally hear the word of God. This is all not. This is all found in Rambam, Peri Zayin Yisrael, etc. The idea of the body awareness being the buffer is what's explained in the Shola. So the Shalah says, you know, there are five names to the Neshama. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama, Chaya, and Yechida. The only two aspects of that Neshama found in the body are Nefesh and Ruach. That's why you say every morning, Elokai, Neshama, she Tahirai. And Reb Chaim Valashner asks, what do you mean? You're a sinful animal. How can you say your neshama is pure? You're a liar. Why did you say Torah The answer is no, because your neshama is not expressed in your body. Only your nefesh and your ruach. That aspect of the soul, which is called neshama, is not part of your sins. It still is pure. It's your nefesh and your ruach, which has to go through a um, cleaning experience. Just remember that. When your nefesh ruach is no more expressed in the body because you, you die, that aspect of the neshama called nefesh ruach goes through a cleaning experience. Look at and the to the pesukim. etc. Nefesh ki As to exact identification of these, of these, obviously, this is not the time and place because it's already over time and late. But I want you to understand that for Moses to attain his level of prophecy, he has to literally walk out of his skin, walk out of his body awareness. So the Shalosh says that's what God told him. (laughs) Shal mi al raglecha. Take the leather covering over the lower levels of your identity, which is your feet, which is get out of your shoes and get out of your body. There's two separate leather coverings, which are covering your personality. Your shoes, your leather animal hide, is covering your feet. And your body is covering, so your body awareness is covering what we will call your nefesh and your ruach. Free yourself from God, from body awareness, then we can have this conversation. That's what the Shulah writes. And that's my Rabbeinu. So can you understand this, that he was 10 years old, 12 years old, a pagan, that grew up in a cat house, for goodness sakes. You know what I mean? Like he was singing in the house of the and son. You know, he grew up there as the piano man. And here he is, 67 years later, with the capability of walking out of body awareness to the extent he's the most perfect human being in all of human history. Does it say anywhere? Did he go take a course? Did he have a Rebbe... It doesn't say it anywhere. Why doesn't the author? Well, we'll find meddles. You'll find whatever you want. I I can supply you that if you want, but this is not the question today. Why does the biblical author not tell us that? What is the message that the biblical author author is telling us by depicting a character that way? It's a very simple message. This cute kid grew up, you know, I'm talking about like in the worst place possible. Compared to his background, all of your backgrounds, were you, as if you were born in the family of the Garden of Vilna, you all have the holiest background. You, you didn't grow up in a cat house. You didn't find out you were Jewish at the age of 12. Hello? Like your granddaddy was not exactly the super, I don't want to say what, you know, like a uh, very nuts dick. You know what I mean? Like, I guess they didn't have too much problems of clothing in the area over there. Whatever, it's It's, it's Caligula's court. What does a kind of child feel like growing up in Caligula's court? That's where he grew up. And he ran away. And then for 60, 70 years, he suddenly transformed into something totally different. You know what the text is telling you? How did he do it? Ten fingers. He's an autodidact. He did it on his own. What do you think? Who did Abraham Avinu? Who did it for Abraham Avinu? On his own. Read the Chumash. That's what the Chumash is telling you. No influences from the outside. He literally was Mekayim, ain't anili, meili. As the Rambam says, it means if you don't have if no one to teach you, you must be your own teacher. There's no excuse because you don't have a good shear or a good rebbe or a good this. You don't have, break your back, man. You got ten fingers, use them. People think that in the yeshiva you only need this finger. That's wrong. If this finger doesn't translate in all ten, you're not learning a word. You got to translate those values in the total mass of your life. This guy took nothing. He started. Where did he start from? Where did he get religious training? Don't you understand? This is the man just like Moshe Avinu. and he attained a level higher than Avram Avinu. The only difference is he didn't have any opposition because he was he was in no one's land, doing nothing. I don't know what he was doing. He was smoking and meditating? For all I know, I don't know what he was doing. But just as Chazal says, the same thing applies here. It doesn't mean his kidneys brought forth wisdom. Kidneys do not have wisdom. It's a metaphor, obviously. It means internal intuition. Intuition and drive led him to knowledge. And that's Meshur Abenu. Meshur is the Character, I always used to call him like the first NCSYer, but without NCSY. And I don't mean NCSY, it's Chaim region. That's a joke. That's not really. I mean NCSY when I was growing up. No, public school. You know, real NCSY, you know, the way it was. You know what I mean? And you have to understand that's what we're looking at. We're looking at a man that didn't have an organization, didn't have a teacher. That's what the Torah is telling you here. I mean, that's the character. I'm, I did nothing wrong. There's no medrash here. He you know, not do any medrash, do anything. I just read the character. So, therefore, I am, I, I, I am totally convinced with intellectual honesty that this is actually true. Is it also beautiful? To me, it's irrelevant. Is it true? Yes, I'm convinced it's true because I have to look at the character. And what would I, as a thinking human being, see in this character? I see. That's why the Torah doesn't say his name. We don't want you to think that, oh, he's the son of, oh, he had these special genes. You know what I mean? He was a blind shakdoshim, and he made shakl nir on his mother's milk, and made a a sechta when he was three for breakfast, lunch, and supper. All these fantasy books, right? No, this guy grew up in a cat house, and it was Jewish till 12, and didn't have a single teacher, and he became who he became. That's the end of the game, guys. I think that's an important piece of information. And the information is that um, um, you got to do it with your 10 fingers. And you have a much better background than he ever had. So, you know, as uh, boots are made for walking, so start walking. Enjoy. Have a great... uh, I still remember when this was innovated and started. I'm very, very happy it's continuing. I do feel a stickle, a stickle, a stickle a stickle proud that I'm the one that drove Mickey and, and David crazy about this. Just, I don't think it's right. This is not hazmanim. No, this man continued. College stopped. Other guys flunked out. You guys are continuing the Zman. That's the approach. Do not think that you're special. Think you are right. Okay? The Zman is continuing, and you're continuing this man. It's a pity they don't continue the same Dapim. That would really send a great message. You know what I mean? This is not bena semester. This is one continuing. It's bena semestering of college. The yeshiva never stopped. If you understand that, then you take the, you guys do the right thing and take the yeshiva to where it should be. Have a great afternoon.
0: Thank bye. you so much, Ravi. Thank you. I'll
1: oh, do. Bye. Moshin. Nice seeing you. Uh, bye. <laughs>